You're listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract, the official podcast of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract is produced for your enjoyment and is focused on the latest journal-published research and science in the field of addiction medicine. Remember to add us to your favorites in iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at ASAMorg and Facebook. Now, let's go beyond the abstract. Welcome to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. I'm your host, Dr. Sean McNeil, and today we'll be joined by Dr. Simeon Kimmel. Dr. Kimmel is an assistant professor of medicine at Boston University School of Medicine and an attending physician in the sections of general internal medicine and infectious diseases at Boston Medical Center. He's an author with a piece in the Journal of Addiction Medicine entitled Rejection of Patients with Opioid Use Disorder Referred for Post-Acute Medical Care Before and After Anti-Discrimination Settlement in Massachusetts. So Dr. Kimmel, thank you for joining us on the podcast. We're very glad to have you here. And I would like to start, as we usually do, by having you uh, introduce yourself and speak a bit about how you got involved with the study and treatment of addiction. I first became interested in addiction medicine, seeing patients with injection drug-related infections in the hospital um, as, a, as a medical student and uh, as a resident. And at the time that I was uh, that I was in training, there was a the standard of care really didn't include offering medications for opioid use disorder uh, in the hospital. Uh, it was just starting to change, and so it, it was this moment where the the lack of access to to evidence based addiction treatment really inspired me. Um, and as a result of of those experiences, I went on and did a joint Infectious Disease and Addiction Medicine Fellowship at Boston Medical Center, and um, and that's kind of how I how I came to this this set of topics. Fantastic, and just so that we can gain some perspective, prior to the settlement between, uh, I believe it was the state of Massachusetts and the Charwell House, how widespread was this issue of these patients um, and their post-acute care referrals being rejected due to the fact that they we're on opioid agonist treatment. So I, I think it's, it was extremely widespread. Um, and that's really what led us to, to look at this. You know, talking to the case managers, there were a few uh, select nursing facilities that they knew of where they would specifically refer people to. Um, but by and large, facilities across the state were, um, were declining patients. And um, I think if you were to talk to inpatient hospitalists or infectious disease doctors or other people taking care of people with addiction who pass through the acute care hospital, everybody knows this is an issue. And fortunately, there's an ally in the U.S. Attorney's Office who, who really took an interest in, these, in this issue and is trying to, to, to hold, hold these facilities accountable. I think that's a positive change. Uh, you know, you mentioned that your study looked for referrals that were rejected due to a mention of the patient's substance use or the fact that they were on opioid agonist uh, treatment. However, this does not account for referral rejections that did not include a comment. So do you feel that this results in an underestimation of the discrimination? And by how much do you think it was underestimated? Yeah, so our, our initial goal was to, to do a study that compared 
facility acceptances for people with and without opioid use disorder. And as we started to look uh, look at what was happening in our facility and look at the, the data that was available, we realized that there was this electronic referral system, which is really a novel, a novel source of information. And the electronic referral system had these comments that, that were transmitted back from facilities. And not all facilities transmitted back comments. But when we were looking through these, these comments, we, we saw that there were all of these facilities that were, that were stating, not taking this patient because of methadone. We don't take people on Suboxone. And, and we thought that this was really something that needed to be described. So I think that you know, this paper um, it demonstrates that there's explicit discrimination against people with, with opioid use disorder who are treated with these medications. Uh, and I think that the uh, implicit discrimination or, or what's actually happening is much, is much wider spread than what we found in the, in the paper. And based on what you said, it sounds like some of these facilities were very brazen in their rejections. Um, do you feel that the referral rejections with no comment were done so intentionally to avoid revealing bias against treating this particular patient population? Yeah, so we, we looked at that in the paper. Um, so we looked at whether, whether there was any change in the, in, the, in the comments, in the frequency of comments after the U.S. Uh, attorney settlement. So was, was the kind of initial, what was the additional attention to this issue changing how facilities were reporting their reasons for rejection? Um, and like I said, not all the facilities actually report a, a specific reason. And we didn't find that the, that, that changed. So I, I think, you know, th- this, this process of referral you know, is, is very relationship-based. Oftentimes, the case managers know the specific folks in the facility. And so a lot of these comments were very, were very informal. And, you know, essentially, between colleagues, it sort of felt like. Um, and, and so I, I think that there may be some facilities who, who specifically know that, this is, that there's guidance, that they're not supposed to do this, who are not putting these comments. But I, I, I think... I, I think it just there's a lot of facilities, obviously, that are that are still reporting it in this way. Yeah, and you you mentioned that uh, you have an ally in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and that relationship can be tr- potentially very transformative in the future. However, your study found no statistically significant changes in these discriminatory rejections after the U.S. Attorney's settlement in 2018. So my question is: Do you feel that the Americans with Disabilities Act? needs to be enforced via some different mechanism in order to achieve better care for patients with substance use disorders? Yeah, so I, that's, a, that's a really good question, and um, I'd be really interested in hearing you know, what, a, what a lawyer would say. Uh, we did find that there was no change in, in these rejections following this one settlement, uh, but there have since been several other settlements. And actually, um, just this week, they announced... Uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office, in combination with um, Health and Human Services, announced a settlement with a with a network of nursing facilities uh, across Massachusetts and Rhode Island. And I think as uh, this was the first settlement that called attention to this, um, but I think as there's more and more um, attention to it, then facilities are going to recognize that that they really need to uh, develop protocols and and really grapple with the with the need. Now, what can clinicians do to better advocate for our patients and to help increase our patients' likelihood of being accepted 
into post-acute care facilities? So the, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Massachusetts has trained uh, the U.S. Attorney's Offices across the country uh, in how to do these investigations and what these, what these legal cases look like. And so I would, uh, if, if you have a patient, it's speaking to, a, to a clinicians here, if they have a patient who, who is being rejected from a facility, that I would contact, uh, you know, with the patient's consent, um, I would contact the U.S. Attorney's Office in, in your state um, and, uh, and ask them to uh, look into it. Now, of course, that's a, that's a kind of a longer-term way of, of changing things. It may not actually impact that, that single patient in front of you, and that's what most, you know, that's what clinicians are really thinking about on day-to-day. How do we provide the best care to, to this specific patient? So it, it may not solve that problem. And, you know, we, we also need to, to make sure that facilities feel supported, that facilities feel like there's, there's, there's people that they have the, the appropriate training and that they have the appropriate clinical backup to be able to, uh, you know, take care of, take care of patients with opioid use disorder well. Okay, very good, very good. Now, do you have any other information that might be useful to clinicians who find themselves in a situation like this? The one thing that facilities often say is that they're, you know, they're sort of what, what they view as low-hanging fruit are people who are stable on medications for opioid use disorder. So for instance, when I was a resident, I recall taking care of a patient who was on buprenorphine, had been for years, had a extremely complicated hospitalization related to pneumococcal pneumonia, was intubated and became very weak and needed physical therapy. And, and that, that patient wasn't able to access that care. But that patient, their, their hospitalization, their, their clinical presentation, the, the, the opioid use disorder was essentially stable and not, not, not really relevant to what was going on with them. And so the, the nursing facilities, I think, are, are, from talking with them, are more open to taking that kind of patient. The pa- patients who present with immediate complications of, uh, of you know, for instance, injection drug use, you know, the facilities want to say, well, someone needs to not have used substances for a certain period. And, and under, the, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, they're really still not actually allowed to say that. But, uh, but that, that is part of, I think, the facility's concerns and that they feel like there's not the, the appropriate support and training, training there. So I think, you know, as addiction clinicians and educators, we really need to make sure that we're, we're providing linkages and support and make, the, make sure that facilities feel like they have access to our expertise the same way that they have access to a cardiologist's expertise when they're taking care of patients with complicated cardiac conditions. Very good. Well, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. Uh, Dr. Kimmel's article can be found in the January-February issue of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. Thank you all for listening, and thank you so much, Dr. Kimmel, for joining us. All right, fantastic. Thank you for the opportunity. This ends today's podcast. Thank you for listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. All of today's show links can be found in the show notes. Remember, you can preview additional abstracts at journalofaddictionmedicine.com. This program was produced by the American Society of Addiction Medicine.